Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's reading is from the book of John, chapter 16, verse 12 through 15, and Galatians, chapter 5. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears and will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Let's pray together. Gracious God, in our silence and stillness, give us ears to hear your voice. As we approach this moment and as we hear these scriptures, we come from a variety of backgrounds and perspectives. We enter this moment from so many temperaments and personalities, experiences. Some of us coming to this very moment excited, optimistic, hopeful, joyful, connected. Others of us lonely or angry, depressed, or mired in addiction and wondering how we're going to find our way out because nothing seems to work. We come to this moment believing and trusting and doubtful and skeptical, cynical. Most of us a mixture of these descriptions. Help us to see that in all our diversity we have more in common than we realize. On one hand, you see us in all our complexity and contradictions and you know us, 
And at the same time, your response to all the beauty and brokenness of our lives is to move toward us in sacrificial, self-giving love. And so we pray now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, as we open the scriptures, that you would teach us in a way that our lives would be transformed and that this world would be renewed. We pray for the power of your spirit in our lives, in our city, in our world. Awaken us to your grace, we pray, and send us out to be your very agents of renewal wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. Amen. Well, when we were first laying the foundation for Renew Church, actually even before that, I mean, part of the inception of this church, you know, I was born and raised in Ocean Beach, lived in San Francisco for 13 years, was pastoring a congregation in the middle of the Mission District. And our old San Diego friends would come up and visit us and they'd, they'd say, oh, we're going to come to church and see what it's like and then we'll go to brunch afterwards and we'd do that. And constantly, Florence and I would hear our friends say, you know, I don't normally go to church. I'm not like a church-going person. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. But if this church existed in San Diego, I'd be a part of it. We heard this again and again, and I said to Florence, I don't know of any other pastor that has non-church-going friends saying, would you please start a church in my neighborhood so I can grow in connection with God and with the community? And that was part of the inception of this church. And we raised a bunch of money to start the church, always fundraising, starting a church, and we moved here in 2017, and my goal was to meet 300 people in the neighborhood and ask questions like, what are your hopes, dreams, and fears? What are the pain points in your life or in this neighborhood? What would a church look like that's good news to all our neighbors? And one of the refrains I heard was, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. We need a church that helps me get in touch with that spiritual side. So many of you, um, whether you've been a Christian for a long time, you're new to Christianity, you get in touch with that spiritual side. We had a dear friend who visited this church not too long ago who doesn't have any church background. And when this friend was describing his experience at church, he said it was spiritual, like the best yoga gatherings that he's ever been to. Now, what all these things have in common is that no matter your background or your exposure to organized religion, there is something deep within you that longs for a spiritual connection. Theologian N.T. Wright calls these echoes of a voice. We can try to outrun them. We can try to overachieve our way around them. But deep within you, something hums with a longing for connection. Now, I get it. You're not going to win any brownie points like in the social scene of North Park for being a Christian. Uh, but I think if you said, I'm, I want to get more in touch with my spiritual life, you would get a lot of nods and a lot of yeses because it's a universal human desire. The question is, what do you do with that desire? How do you satisfy that longing for spiritual connection, that, that innate sense that there's more to life than meets the eye, that there's this deeper water experience of life? What do you do with that? And today in the scriptures we heard, we learn what the spiritual life is, what it looks like, and how to access it. First, what the spiritual life is. I was asking my son yesterday, what do you think is the most powerful force in the whole world? 
He goes, I don't know, what do you think? I said, I think it's probably God's creative energy. I can't diagram it for you, but I can sense it. I can see it at work in other people's lives and in the world. I get a history of it as I read through the scriptures. So what is the spiritual life? It is the power of God's creative, loving, energetic presence in you. I mean, let that sink in for a minute. In fact, let's step back. It's Trinity Sunday, so let's, let's start to get our, I'm not even, even going to be as grandiose to say get our minds around it. You cannot get your mind around it. The God that we are presented, the engine of the power of the universe, is the Trinitarian life of God. We're going to unpack that. It's, it's start, we'll start theological, but we're going to get to practical. Okay, let, bear with me here. The life of the Trinity. In John chapter 16, Jesus says, I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them. But when the Spirit comes, the Spirit will guide you into truth because the Spirit won't speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears and will declare to you the things that are to come. The Spirit will glorify me, Jesus, because the Spirit will will, will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said that the Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. It's like water skiing. You have to go fast enough to get on top of the water so you don't just drown in the thing. But when you put it all together like that, what he's saying is all of the Father's creative energy, capacity, and love is in me, and the Spirit declares it and reveals it and makes it available to you. Wow. Even if right now you're saying, I doubt it, I don't believe it, and I understand, that that is a magnificent claim. There has to be a part of you that's at least saying, I wish that was true. And what he just, and what Jesus is alluding to is the life of the Trinity. One God in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that are distinct and yet one. We see these glimpses. First of all, the doctrine of the Trinity is accessible enough that children can wade into it and not drown, and deep enough that scholars and theologians can dive into their entire life and never hit the bottom. As my systematic theology professor said, you can apprehend God, but you can't comprehend God. You can approach God, but you can't get around God all the way. We wouldn't know God unless God was revealed. And my point is, if you were inventing a religion in the first century, you would not create the doctrine of the Trinity. This is something that God revealed. This is who God is. This is what God is like. And it goes all the way back. Once you see it, you kind of can't unsee it. So then you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And in the very beginning in creation, I mean Genesis 1, it doesn't get before that. It literally starts with in the beginning. Okay. So in the beginning, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the chaotic waters. God the Father creates the world through God's word. So there you have the Spirit, the Creator, and the Word of God. Okay? It goes on. When Jesus is baptized in the Jordan, Jesus comes, Jesus, the word of God made flesh, comes out of the water. And the voice of God the Father comes from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him as the spirit is alighting upon him as a dove. Later, when Jesus is risen from the dead after being crucified, he commissions his followers and says, and he says, bless them, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And remember, I'm with you always, even till the end of the age. And there are many others as well. You can Google, you know, listings of the Trinity in Scripture. The point is this. From the very beginning, all the way through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and the church, the early church especially, there was this 
I don't fully understand it, but God seems to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? And the implications were that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed throughout all time. There never was a time that they did not exist. What was God doing before creation? Eternally loving one another. Theologians invented this beautiful word, perichoresis, to describe what's happening at the heart of God. Perichoresis. Peri is the root word that we have for perimeter, around. Choresis is the root word for choreography, dancing. The three persons of the Trinity throughout all eternity have been dancing around with one another in a creative divine dance of love. As one friend said, that should take you up so high, it gives you a nosebleed. But it doesn't stop there. I mean, it has all sorts of implications. One is, why did God create the world? Well, we don't know exactly why, but we know one reason why God didn't create the world. God did not create the world because God was lonely and needed a companion. God was already completely full of love in the mutual divine dance. I think one great idea of why God did create the world is because that divine dance of creativity and mutual love constantly pouring together had to bubble up and go somewhere. I think that's why in Genesis 1.26, before the doctrine of the Trinity was established, there's plural language for creation. God says, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. Now just hold on to that for a second. Because where you believe you come from matters. What's your narrative for why we're here? Or do you just throw up your hands and say, I've got so many other things to do right now, I don't think about it. This is unlike any other creation narrative of any civilization that would answer the question, why are we here? I'll give you one example. The Enuma Elish, the ancient Mesopotamian story of creation, says that all creation came from a divine fight that ended in death. The god Marduk and the demigod Tiamat got into a fight and Marduk killed Tiamat in violent rage and split open her body and entrails and blood and guts came out and from all of that the universe was created. That's the story. You know what it tells you? At the root of all creation is violence. That's a pretty good creation narrative if you want an empire that's going to crush everybody but it will eat you alive. I mean, Rome, the Roman Empire, the Pax Romana, they had a very similar story. The brothers, Remus and Romulus, got into a fight, and Romulus killed Remus and had the rights to name the great empire city, Rome. The name of the city is for the namesake of the one who killed his brother. And that's a really great creation narrative if you want to dominate the entire world. But it shall not stand. And here comes along God's revelation that says that the heart of the universe is creative, humming, sacrificial, self-giving love that overflows so much that that creative love created you. 
Do you have a value for yourself that high? I spoke to a friend this week, very um, achieving person, good career, good everything, good everything. And they're coming to a part of their story where they um, just, there's some aspects they cannot control. And that internal critic starts to ramp up. and says, you are a failure, which goes even deeper for some of us. You are not lovable. And for him, this made all the difference to go, God loves you, and so you can love yourself. Some of the most complex things in life are actually pretty simple, as long as they're sturdy and strong and true. What if your narrative for yourself was, I am created in the image and likeness of a God who loves me and knows me and calls me God's own? Because we're going to get into the fruit of the Spirit, but if you just try to live into love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, you're going to be trying to paste fruit onto a tree that might not be alive. You have to start with what the tree is rooted in, and it's rooted in this life. This is the deeper life. And so this overflowing love births all creation, and it means now you're created in the image and likeness of that God, which means you were created for community. You were created to be known and loved and to know and love others. And that's terrifying. We live according to false narratives that say it takes too much cost, too much trouble to know and love other people. And it's too terrifying to be truly known because if they really knew the truth about you, they'd laugh or say yuck or run. And this all begins in the creative love of God. The, you have to find a foothold somewhere. This is the rock you could stand on that will not move. You were built for community and connection. Now, what's the spiritual life like? First, I want you to notice, if you haven't noticed this before, the fruit of the Spirit contains nine aspects. But they're not nine fruits. Okay, that's really critical. Because what that means is the fruit of the Spirit, which is the outflow, the result of the Spirit in your life, would be these nine marks of existence, of interaction, of living it's not nine different fruits, whereas you'd say, I kind of like number one, three, five, and seven, but I'm not that big on two and six and so on, right? It's not a buffet. It's more like a diamond that has nine facets. And as you turn the diamond, you begin to see it in its dazzling brilliance. So what does that fruit look like? It looks like love. Jesus defined love for us. If you walk down 30th Street and you could be the weird person at brunch, hey everybody, just a second, how do you define love? Maybe that'd be a great conversation, I don't know. Love is when someone really completes you and fills you up and you're a better person when you're around them. That's good. Love is when you can't be away from somebody. That's good too. But Jesus defined love even deeper. Greater love has no one than someone who would lay down their life for a friend. So love has a self-giving aspect to it. Love has a sacrificial aspect to it. Lust, on the other hand, just wants to get. 
And I mean lust whether we're talking about you know, in relationships, in business, sexual lust. I mean, we could talk about lusting after San Diego. A lot of us would say, I love San Diego. But really deep down, we lust after San Diego because we just want the good stuff that it has to give us without giving anything back. But if you really love your city, you would say, not only how can I use this as a playground to maximize my enjoyment, but how can I lay down my life for the people around me? What does love look like in your life? Joy. Joy is distinguished from happiness. And I'm a big fan of both. Don't get me wrong. You will never catch me being the happiness police. But joy is deeper. Because whereas happiness is dependent upon your current circumstances and experience, when things are going well, I'm happy. When things aren't, I'm not. Joy goes, something, goes deeper because it's located in the presence and faithfulness and goodness of God, no matter what's happening in your life. That's not a command. That's an invitation. It's an invitation that nothing can sink you. This is where the Apostle Paul, who wrote Galatians, also said, rejoice, I'll say it again, rejoice, while he was writing from a Roman prison. It's not a putting of your head in the sand like an ostrich and pretending like the bad things aren't happening. It is not adopting a hallmark, sugary version of spirituality where you say everything's going to be just fine because God is good. Although that's true. It's facing the difficulties of your life while holding on to the reality that God is present here and God will never leave you or forsake you. And so you can have a buoyancy and a resiliency. Peace. Peace begins with the absence of conflict. We want peace in Ukraine. We want peace in our relationships. But it goes even deeper than that. The old Hebrew word, shalom, talks about the flourishing of all relationships. And so the fruit looks like not only enjoying that in your own life, but committing to foster that wherever you go. And it could be as simple as when you go to work, before you go to work, a simple prayer. Gracious God, Help everybody I meet today meet you and me. Help me to do the best work possible that I could do to serve the greatest amount of people. To use the excellent gifts you've given me wherever I may go. And may your peace reign on earth. I'll tell you, I had that experience this week. I have a side job where I fly around the country and coach business executives to communicate to influence. And I went to Seattle for a couple days to coach the the executives who are in charge of the Alexa project at Amazon. And so I'm with the, I'm, I could drop names, it doesn't matter. The point is, I was intimidated and overwhelmed, and when I get like that, I start to think, please don't look bad, please don't mess this up, please don't let them realize that you don't know as much as you think you do. But this prayer turns that on its head, because instead of it being about me looking good, it's gracious God, help me to add the most value to this person's life that I possibly can. Help me to be of greatest service to the person in front of me right now that I can. Help me to do the best I can on this project so everybody can flourish and thrive. And then you can go, you're still, you're not saying it doesn't matter if we don't do well. You want to do the best you can, but it's from a totally different perspective. You see, one moves forward in hopes that everybody would love you or accept you. The other moves forward knowing that you're already loved and accepted. That's a different kind of peace. That's a different kind of peace. Patience. 
kindness, generosity. Generosity is the antithesis of consumeristic greed. The myth of consumeristic greed is, you know what's going to fulfill you? Just a little bit more. You know what's going to fulfill you? The Apple Phone 13. Until October, then the 14 comes out. Gosh, do you remember 2007, 2008 when the Apple One came out and it was like, I mean, they were so archaic, you couldn't even get a, a photo text message on it yet. You had to go to a website to get your photo text messages. But that was the thing. If you were in a restaurant and some, I remember being in a restaurant and someone had one and it was like someone pulled up in a Ferrari. And now it's like, I wouldn't even, you can't even run the latest operating. The point, you see the fallacy, right? One more thing and then it gets old and you need more. As opposed to Generosity. All that I have, all my, all my resources, my financial resources, my home, my health, they're gifts. And I've been given them for a reason. Why have I been given these gifts? And for whom might they be of greatest service? And I'll tell you, the happiest people I know are not the millionaires I know. Well, some of them. But the thing they all have in common is they give away their money in radical amounts. If you ever want your money to make you happy, give it away to people in need. And that's, I'll just tell you, that's part of why this church tries to give as sacrificially as we can to our ministry partners and the greatest pain points in our city. And when we write checks, they say, we don't understand. You're writing a check that's bigger than a lot of really big churches. Why do you do this? You're a startup church. And I say, because it's in our DNA. What's it, and it, that's one of the things that give me the greatest joy. Those are my favorite days. What's it like, look like to live a life of generosity? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Your relationship with God is not dependent upon your ability to always get it right and never mess up. This is the idea that transformed Martin Luther, the reformer's life. He had thought his whole life that he had to get it all right for God to love him until he realized that actually the faithfulness the scriptures call for is that you would recognize God is faithful to you even when you're not faithful. You cannot do an end run around God's grace and forgiveness. One way you know that you're not getting that yet is when you go, that's awesome. I could do whatever I want all week and then say sorry I'm Sunday and then do whatever I want all week. It's a step in the right direction. Maybe you're recognizing that God is forgiving, but you haven't, the penny hasn't dropped yet. It hasn't made that 12-inch journey from the head to the heart yet where you go, once you see how much he loves you, then you wouldn't want to go and have it your way all week. You can actually trust him. So then obedience becomes about joy, not about obligation. I just want to sing the praises of a hero I met. I went from Seattle to Salt Lake City for two days, and at the airport I met a woman. We were talking about where we were going, and she was going to Minnesota to pick up her daughter from the rehab clinic, her 14-year-old daughter. And her 14-year-old daughter at 27 days had relapsed and gotten kicked out of the clinic, and so this was a very sad story. And I got to stand on the, t on the sidewalk with this lady who was going, in my, in my vision, enacting the love of Christ and pick, picking up this daughter who was at the end of her resources, the end of her options, and was inflicting a lot of self-harm. And say, I will travel any distance to come get you and bring you home, and I will never give up on you. That's faithfulness. That's the way God loves you.
And when you see that, you can begin to love others in the same way. Gentleness, self-control. I have a lot more to say on this. I'm watching the clock. One of the side things, I, I appreciate Father Colin preaching last week. Unfortunately, he showed you that it's possible to give a sermon in 20 minutes. <laughs> but I want you to see that if you allow yourself to be rooted in the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that comes into you, it will produce this fruit that will transform your life if you do it. If we all do it together, it will transform the city. We become an alternative city within the city. And if the entire church around the world did it, the world would be renewed many times over. So how do you get it? It's critical that you see the order of growth. As I said, it's not do these things and then God will love you, accept you, and bless you. It's talking about fruit. Fruit that grows naturally on trees when they're rooted in good soil. And I also want you to know that if you've ever watched fruit grow on a tree, limes grow on a tree, my son goes, what is wrong with these limes? They're as big as, you know, the period at the end of a sentence. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's how fruit starts. It starts really small. If you walked by the tree fast enough, you would think there was no fruit on it. But upon closer inspection, there's something growing there. So don't be discouraged if the fruit doesn't grow as fast or as big as you hoped, but you trust that something's growing. It's an organic. That means you can take it easy on yourself. You can have a big vision with a lot of humility. How do you do it? Three things. First, receive. Okay? The hardest thing for you and me to do is to receive that God actually loves you this much because we're doers. But note that God's grace always moves first and is always moving. I mean, a quick scan of that John 16 passage where Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. What is the Spirit doing? Verse 13, Spirit comes to you. Spirit will guide you into all the truth. The Spirit will not speak on the Spirit's own, but will speak whatever the Spirit hears. The Spirit will declare to you the things that are to come. The Spirit will glorify Jesus Christ. The Spirit will take what is Jesus and declare it to you. The Spirit's at work. The question is, how are you receiving it? I had a friend the other day who said that God is not at work in my life. I said, if God was at work in your life, what would be different? He said, I don't know. I said, well, then how do we not know God's at work in your life? And maybe you're just not paying attention. At least it has to be an option. For really busy people like us, the question is, what are you doing to till the soil, to receive? How do you put yourself in a position to receive? On one hand, you create time. You create time. On the other side, you create habits in which to fill that time. So here are a few ideas of habits. Prayer, reflection and study, rest, worship, sharing what God is doing in your life with others, working for justice in this world. And again, I'd commend to you, it's not pick one, it's all of them at some point in your life. But if the electrician comes to you and just talks about all the power that could be in your home and all the things that could be illuminated and turned on and all that and never connects the power, then nothing will happen. So in, in many ways, the power is always flowing. You have to intentionally, excuse me, connect the power. Jesus elsewhere says the spirit, blow, the spirit blows like a wind. If you go to San Diego Harbor today, there'll be a nice breeze there about 3 p.m. 
And if you saw a nice sailboat out there with the sail down, bobbing in the surf, the wind's blowing, all the boat captain needs to do is raise the sails. How do you raise the sails in your life? What's your calendar look like? What are you focused on? Second, it happens in community. It happens in relationship. And this is not an accident because at the heart of all creation is relationship. So yes, you can grow spiritually alone. Of course you can. But God will do things in your life and community that you will not experience solo. We see this throughout both scriptures, uh, but especially um, here in John 16. It says that when he says the spirit will declare it to you, that you is plural, y'all. Everything in Galatians 5 is we and us. You know what that means? Christianity is inherently plural. In our individualistic society that says me first, me, mine, take care of me, I could do it all myself, that's shocking. But throughout scripture, people experience God in community. That's why we have a church. That's why we gather together on Sundays. That's why if you can only make it online, I still urge you always to find a way to connect with others. And that's why I'll just say, and I'll, I'll end here, I'm so excited about this. Um, we're at the life of our church now where not all the relationships just connect to me, but your relationships connect to each other. And that's awesome. Because then we go from being a wheel with spokes that all go to the founder, to the pastor, to becoming an interconnected web, which is much stronger, much more connected, much more vibrant. So even as we move to social gatherings this summer, I urge you to take the extra time that you have, reach out to somebody in this church, invite them to coffee and get to know them. Do it in relationship. And then third, there's this constant recalibration. There's always a turning from and a turning toward. Turning from and turning toward. But here's the point. In the midst of all the difficulty of this world, when I turned on my news browser this morning, Candidly, sometimes it looks like the dystopian front pages from like 1980s futuristic movies. It's like there's a famine over here and a war over there and people are killing each other and everything's terrible. It's like, but that's our news today. You know that, right? Don't let that become normal to you. That's not normal. And don't let it wear you out to the point where you say, just forget about it. I'm just going to focus on my life. But in the midst of all that chaos and difficulty, the spirit of God is at work in your life and in this world. So Renew Church, we are invited to put our roots deep into that soil together that we might bear fruit that will last in this world. And that fruit looks like the coming kingdom of God that renews all things. Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you for this moment you've given us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that is alive and active in our lives in this world. And so now I pray that your spirit would do what I could never do, which is actually transform us. And your strength move in our weakness. In your brilliance, move in our confusion. In your faithfulness, move toward us in our wanderings. And truly inspire us to go out and do likewise for others. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.